1 through 13. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from the race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all uh, are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so... But also, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Father, we come to you now and we ask that you would open up this passage to us. Use me, I pray, um, but uh, may the Holy Spirit help us to understand this, to grow in it, to rejoice in it. May it come off the page and be implanted into our lives. We ask uh, that through the study of the, the scriptures that uh, what we have not you would give us and what you want us to be you would make us as a result of our time in the scripture this morning to you be all the glory in jesus name amen so we come to the fourth major section of this letter of the apostle paul to the church in rome but really to the church of all time right it's a letter from god written through paul uh, to the church. And it is his deep and thorough explanation of salvation, the doctrine of salvation. Soteria is the, the word that uh, stands for that. And in it, we, we saw the, the theme back in chapter 1, verse of 16 and 17. You ought to know it by heart, but I'll say it for you. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for his power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as, as it is written, the, the righteous shall live by faith. And then the first major section of the letter gets dropped on the audience. And you can wrap it up in one word. That one word is condemnation condemnation it's really answering why we need God's righteousness that is revealed in the gospel why we need it is because we stand condemned as sinners whether you're super righteous in your own eyes or you are you know a God denier you are condemned 
is what Paul says. Everyone's condemned before God because all fall short of his glory. They sin and they deserve his holy wrath. The second major section is wrapped up in one word as well. Justification. Justification. And that answers the question how we get the righteousness of God. We need it. How do we get it? Through justification. We are declared righteous by God when we place our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that his blood was sufficient to pay for our sins and that we can be reconciled to God through what he has done, justification by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because he declares us righteous on the basis of what Christ did, which was imputed to us, when our sin was imputed to him, and he bore the wrath of God for us. Hallelujah for that. The third major section was one word, sanctification. Sanctification, and that's talking about how God, after we have been justified by faith, he sets us apart from sin and unto himself as his possession and for his glory. And that involved three things. Number one, chapter six, was we become dead to sin instead of dead in sin. We're dead to its penalty and its power. Chapter seven was we are dead to the law. No longer dead under the law, its penalty and its power, but dead to the consequence of being lawbreakers. Hallelujah for that. And then chapter eight, we are alive in the spirit. That's the the chapter that we spent several weeks on And we ended last week with the glorious truth that because of the Holy Spirit coming into our lives when we were justified by faith, we are absolutely secure in God's love. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that brings us to the fourth major section. And and really, Paul has ended his explanation of how we get right with God in the first eight chapters. But he's not done talking about salvation yet. He he wants to explain how God has dealt with Israel and the Gentiles. Remember the the, the theme? is the, The gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. So he wants to explain how God works this out. And in a, in a sense, he's vindicating God. So the fourth major section, which is chapters 9 through 11. One word for it is vindication. He's vindicating God's work among sinners, particularly in how God has dealt with Israel. That's where we're at. So, the reason he must do this. And and by the way, you'll recall, if you've been here as we've gone through it, Paul has continually addressed the Jewish question. The straw man that he keeps on bringing up and what the Jew would say to his teaching and his preaching. He's continually addressed that. And so at this point in the letter, he's taught many things that actually seem to speak pretty poorly about the Jews, right? It's like not, not as individuals, but as a as a people group and the rejection of the gospel. He's, he's shown that the Jews essentially had trusted in their being descendants of Abraham and their belief in law-keeping and their uh, trust in religious rituals like circumcision and so on and religious activities and not, not in the gospel 
of Jesus Christ, not in the gospel of grace. And so the whole argument of the book to this point demands the examination of the Jewish question and how they fit into God's plan of salvation. And that's what he's going to be covering. Chapter 8, again, ended with this high note of assurance. Uh, believers in Christ are completely secure in the love of God, and nothing can separate them from, from Christ. God's elect, he says, will always remain God's elect. There's no changing that. Those whom he has foreknown and predestined, he also uh, called and justified, and those that he justified, he also glorified. Wow, we rejoiced in that last week, didn't we? I know I did. By the way, let's, let me hear this section over here. Can you say amen? You can say it. Okay, let's do this section. Amen. amen. Oh, that's so much better. You've got a long way to go. I mean, there are more in this group than over there, but how about you guys? Amen. <laughs> you got it. You got it. And over here? Amen. Okay, so let's hear more of that as we rejoice in God's word together. You are such a quiet bunch. Such a quiet bunch. Let, let your voices lift up praise to the Lord as we continue on. So, believers in Christ are secure. The, the, that brings up the question, what about the Jews? What about the Jews? Doesn't the, Old Testament, doesn't the Old Testament clearly show that Israel was God's chosen people? Yes, it does. That's right. At, at this at the time that the letter was written by Paul, the Jews uh, were mostly on the outside of the church. It was primarily being made up of Gentile converts. And so Paul must face the fact that the majority of the Jews had rejected Jesus Christ as Savior, as the Messiah. But the question which is looming at this point, I think, is that if God and this might be from the Jewish mindset, but if God is not able to bring his chosen people, the Jews, to salvation, doesn't that take away from any sense of security for those Gentiles who are in Christ? I mean, couldn't God change his mind about the Gentiles like it seems he did with the Jews? That's a looming question. And and the movement of this next major section of the letter brings this, to the point where Paul addresses that question. That's the big question. And so he turns to the subject of God's sovereign election where he vindicates God in his dealing with the Jews and the Gentiles. And he teaches three main truths in these chapters, just like he did in chapters 6 through 8, three main truths. And, and so in first in chapter 9, we see that God is free and sovereign in the matter of salvation, and that he never did choose every Jew to be saved. And so the truth of chapter 9 is divine sovereignty. Okay. Secondly, we read in chapter 10 that God had rejected the majority of the Jews because they had rejected the Christ, and they were culpable for their sin. And that is the truth of human responsibility. So divine sovereignty in chapter 9, human responsibility in chapter 10, and then uh, third in chapter 11, we see that God has not, in fact, completely nor finally 
set Israel aside. There will come a day when God will turn his focus once again to, toward the, the children of Israel, that ancient people, and, uh, and save them. And, and that is the truth of God's faithfulness. Faithfulness to his promises. Faithfulness to his purposes for those people. So keeping these three truths of mind, divine sovereignty, human responsibility, and God's faithfulness in mind, I, I hope will help us deal with some of the tough questions that come up in this section of the letter. I, I can tell you this. I've heard uh, preachers that they preach through the book of Romans, and they don't even cover 9, 10, 11. Because of some of the tough questions that come up. It's just divine and sovereign election, and how do you make it all work? It's, it just seems so difficult, and, you know, it seems so ancient as well. So maybe we can just pass over that and get right to chapter 12 through 16, which is kind of the applicational part of the gospel. But we're not going to do that. We want to understand this because it is part of God's marvelous salvation plan being worked out for the nations, including the nation of Israel. So we begin in, in chapter 9 with Israel's rejection being described by Paul in a sense as a very sad story in verses 1 through 5. So again, what Paul has said thus far in the letter concerning the Jews and what he preached in the gospel gave the Jews a, a, a feeling that Paul was the enemy of Israel, not its friend. And in fact, as you read through Acts, where did most of the persecution that Paul faced come from? From the Jews. They stirred up all the attacks against him. They tried to kill him. They were responsible for him being stoned and, and three times uh, beaten with rods. They were the ones that were responsible for him being brought before Gallio and Corinth to be judged, etc., etc. They were the ones that landed him, in essence, in jail in Caesarea Philippi for two years, and then two years again in Rome after suffering shipwreck. So they were the ones responsible, and they saw him as an enemy. And he's made a plain that Israel has more or less been put on the shelf and God's present work in the world is primarily among the Gentiles. That much is clear from the letter. And yet, Paul is wanting to stress he's not Israel's enemy. He's not. He considers himself a friend and, more importantly, as a brother, a kinsman according to the flesh. He's actually a loving brother and friend, and to him, their rejection of Jesus Christ was a terribly sad, grieving story for him. And it begins with his heart for the lost. So if you have your insert, you're wanting to fill in that verse blank, a heart for the lost in verses 1 through 3. And it is with striking emotion and emphasis that Paul describes his great sorrow over Israel's unbelief and a strong desire to see them come to believe in the only good news of salvation. Read those verses again. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears uh, me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off for Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. 
So Paul begins his statement with saying that, you know, he's got veracity to what he's saying. He's speaking the truth. In fact, if you look at the Greek text, the the first word in chapter 9 is truth. Truth I'm speaking, if you're translating the Greek text in order. And the point is that he's making that the emphasis. Not that he's speaking, but that truth is what he is speaking. And, and added to that, he says that he is speaking the truth in Christ. Now, what does that mean? That means he's saying, I'm in the presence of the Lord. So as he's right here with me, standing next to me as I'm writing this or as I speak these things, he could verify, he could validate that what I say is the truth. And then, you know, it was not uncommon in that day to write the negative to emphasize the positive. I am not lying. I, I'm truth speaking. Christ could validate that. And just to make sure you understand, I'm not lying. I'm not hiding the truth. I'm not deceiving you in any way. And next, you know, he says that uh, his he's got two witnesses to him being a truth speaker, speaker with what he's going to say. His conscience and the Holy Spirit. Now, what is our conscience? Well, it's that part of us, right? We all have it. Whoa, that was wrong. What are you doing? Or, good job. I want to affirm you. That was the right choice. Uh, Bad words. Stay away from that. Uh, Encouraging words. Do that more. That's our conscience, right? And the Holy Spirit, for us who are in Christ, the Holy Spirit interacts with our conscience. So my conscience is clear on this matter. I'm speaking the truth. The Holy Spirit is speaking through me. You know, I do, he said in Acts, uh, I do all that I can to exercise a, a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. That's what he's stressing here. And then he expresses the truth of which he's speaking. It's not the gospel that he's referencing here. It is that he has great sorrow and anguish in his heart over the rejection of the gospel by his people. I have great sorrow and anguish in my heart, the core of my being, or the rejection of my people uh, toward the gospel. So the pain that Paul feels, he's saying, is real. These are not, in a sense, crocodile tears that he would be shedding here, you know. This is not a phony expression of concern. You know how that is, right? Oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. This is like... could really care less, but you should say that. No, this isn't that kind of thing. He wants the Jewish readers to know that he was no bitter renegade from the Jewish people, you know, lashing out against those who had caused him so much pain. He still saw himself as their brother, as their kinsman, that very Old Testament word, right? The kinsman redeemer. Uh, He was their kinsman according to the flesh. And so Israel's rejection of Christ and the gospel caused him intense suffering and sorrow. By the way, just as it did for the Lord Jesus. Right? When Jesus on on the day of his triumphal entry, as he arrives and he's overlooking the city, he wept for the city. How how he wished that they would have received him and received the blessing instead of through their actions bringing upon themselves the judgment that would come at a later time. 
Now, let's apply this just for a moment if we can. I think we all know these kind of feelings that he's expressing here. And I, I think also that there's no greater grief than to love someone intensely and yet see them reject the very thing that can keep them from eternal destruction. I mean, is there anything more devastating than to feel love for someone and to know that they're drifting ever closer every day to danger and despair and destruction and finally eternal death? Especially, especially when you feel helpless to do anything about it. That's how Paul felt. He's been reaching out. It was his constant ministry. Wherever he went to a new city, he would go to the synagogue first, to his own people first. And then he would turn to the Gentiles when they rejected what he was preaching. The majority of them would. He felt that deeply. I, I, Carol and I regularly, constantly are praying for members of our family not our children. Our children know the Lord, but our grandchildren. And uh, it's like, oh, God, bring them to draw them to them. And knowing that each day they're stepping closer to eternity without Christ. Or it could be parents. We've been praying regularly, right, for Kathleen's mom and dad, not just for the health issues. I know that is great sorrow and anguish that is felt by them and by us. That's what he's expressing. That shouldn't be hard for us to understand. And this is how he says he continually feels about his brothers, his kinsmen according to the flesh. His, his anguish was so deep over the situation that he says that he would be willing to be accursed from Christ, cut off from Christ, separated from Christ. The, the word accursed that is in the text, is anathema. Uh, you've heard that term before. Paul uses elsewhere, like in Galatians. If anyone else preaches a different gospel than I, what I've shared with you, even if it's an angel from heaven, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. And that the, the, the cutoff or separation is your translators explaining that, that word. Those words aren't actually in the text, but the word anathema is. He'd be willing to be anathema, Cursed, cut off, separated from Christ for their sake. Now, listen, Paul knew that that was impossible. Right? Paul knew that he couldn't be cut off from Christ. He had just said it, said in chapter, at the end of chapter 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. But that doesn't mean that he's not being honest or truthful in saying it. It, what it, it, it is... The, the strongest way possible that he could express his grief, his anguish, his sorrow over their rejection of the gospel. And it reminded me of the story in Exodus of Moses and God. You remember it, Exodus 32. Uh, Moses had gone up on the mountain, received the Ten Commandments, written by the finger of God. He's up there 40 days and 40 nights. And then there's noise coming from the camp down below, and the noise is related to the, uh, the people saying, hey, I don't think Moses is coming back, so uh, Aaron, make us a god to follow. And they take all their gold jewelry and stuff, and they throw it in a, in a pot. And according to Aaron, he says, and it just came out a golden cap. I don't know how it happened. It just came out that way. 
And they began to worship the golden calf, and that included all kind of vile activities, sexual sins, orgies going on, and so on and so forth. And Moses comes down, and, man, he's hot. He breaks the Ten Commandments. I mean, he's angered over it, and he calls the Levites to his side. Who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. The Levites come over. Now go through the camp and start killing people. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty violent scene going on there. And then God says to Moses, step aside, Moses. I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to destroy them for their sin. And I'll just start over with you. How's that sound? And Moses says, God, I'd rather you not. I'm paraphrasing, by the way. Uh, I'd rather you not. In fact, I feel so strongly about this that if you will not forgive their sin, then kill me with them. I don't want to go on if you're just going to destroy them. Now, God didn't destroy the children of Israel. And I think that was more God teaching Moses a lesson than it was the children of Israel. But it sounds very similar to what Paul said. I would wish to be a curse. Moses said, I'm willing to be cut out of the book of life if you're going to destroy them. And that was Paul's love for his people as well. Now, again, let's think about applying this in our own life, because this seems also distant and far away, right? But I wonder how many of us really have a heart for the lost. Now, you probably have a heart for those that are dear to you, family, children, parents, grandparents, kids, extended family, and so on. Maybe you say, well, of course I do. But would we ever say like Moses or like Paul? My love for the, them is the loss is so strong that I'd be willing to be accursed or separated from Christ so that they could be saved. And again, we know that that's not possible. We know that that's not possible. But I know that my love falls, falls far short of that, that kind of thinking. <laughs> you know, I, I could say, uh, I don't know that I don't want to die for this vile uh, person or this pagan person, even just physical death, knowing that, you know, I'll go be with the Lord. I may not want to do that. My love is that limited. But Paul is expressing that's, you know, the kind of love he had. And I wonder if it, it should be the kind of love that we have for people. Not in the sense of that we would be a curse from Christ, but maybe we should think of it in light of what sacrifices we are willing to make in order to see the lost come to Christ? Or are we willing to bear the rejection uh, that we may encounter when we share the gospel with our family or our friends or maybe just an acquaintance? We know that if we do that, we might get rejected. Stop it. I don't want to hear that. Or are we willing to face the rejection of even inviting someone to a church meeting where they could hear the gospel. I don't know, they might think we're a little bit, you know, hard-lined on things. Well, and by the way, we are compared to what's going on out there, but uh, hard-lined to the truth, but are we willing to face that kind of rejection just so someone could hear the gospel if, if we weren't willing to share it with them? Maybe we should be praying, oh God, give us a heart for the lost. Give us a heart for the lost. Give your church 
give ABF a heart for sinners who are still bound for hell and they're not even realizing it. It's a very sad story that Paul is saying and you can see the emotional impact that it has on him as he considers it. And then secondly, in verses 4 and 5, we see that great privileges don't equate with a guarantee of salvation. So great privileges aren't a guarantee. And that's what he's saying in verses 4 and 5. He says, I I would do anything possible to see them come to Christ. And you would think that they had every advantage, every privilege that should have made them receptive to Christ. But great privileges aren't a guarantee. So what makes Israel's rejection of the gospel all the more intense for Paul was all those privileges that the Jews had that other nations did not enjoy. And yet, we can see from what he says in 4 and 5 that those privileges just aren't a guarantee that they will be saved. So, look at that again. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belongs the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So, Paul says first, They are Israelites. They are Israelites. Now, that was the theocratic name, in other words, the name given by God, to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, if you've read the Old Testament, you would be aware that he was renamed by God Israel. Just as, you know, Peter got his name from Christ. He is Cephas, the rock, right? And, and, and that was what God did with Jacob. He renamed him Israel. And so it, this was the term that showed that they were not just members of a national or racial or ethnic group, but members of the people of God. I was just listening to a podcast this week by Al Mohler where he was talking about Israel that way and that ever since the, the nation, and, uh, it became a nation in 1948, and uh, ever since then, it, it, it was formed and still is very secular. It's very secular. And not, not, the, not the real thinking of like, we are the people of God, and this is the land promised to us. No, the nation of Israel is very secular, other than those very orthodox groups, the kind of the far right part of it. And to them, to be called the nation of Israel was not to be just part of a racial or ethnic or national group, but rather the covenant people of God. And that is what Paul is saying here. And and after the return from the exile in the Old Testament, this term became the regular self-designation of the Jewish people, expressing their consciousness that they were, in fact, God's chosen people. They were the people of God and different from any other nation on earth. God had declared that to them. You are my firstborn. You're the, the only nation that I have this relationship with. And it's not because of who you are, it's because of who am, who I am. I, I loved you because I loved you, not because you were lovable. Covenant people of God. Only when that distinctive privilege of being an Israelite connected with the other distinctive pr- uh, privileges that Paul lists does the significance of being an Israelite stand out? 
Because we might just think, well, an Israelite is a Jew. A Jew is an Israelite. But for them, it was their way of identifying, we're the chosen people of God. That was a privilege no other nation had. And the next privilege that in his list is that they be, uh, they be, to them belong the adoption. The adoption. Now, some of your versions might have the adoption of sons, but it's, it's just the word for adoption. Uh, this is, by the way, the only place in the New Testament where this word is used of the Jewish people. Normally, it, and it's only used about five or six times in the New Testament, but normally it is a reference to those who are in Christ, in the church. In fact, we saw that in chapter 8, where he's talking about we have the Spirit, we're being led by the Spirit, and the Spirit is speaking to us, telling us that we can cry out to God, Abba, Father, because we have been adopted into his family. But the Jews were very conscious of that, that they had been adopted into God's family. And this, this focuses on the point that Israel, like all of us who are in the church family, didn't naturally belong to the heavenly family, to God's family. It's not a natural generation thing. It was always and only a matter of God's grace where he chose people to be part of his family, just as is true of us. And then Paul adds the glory, the glory to this list of privileges. Now, this is most likely a reference to the visible presence of God's glory among the children of Israel in the Old Testament. So to Israel alone belonged that divine presence, the Shekinah glory. Maybe you've heard that term before, the Shekinah glory that appeared as a pillar of fire or a cloud for 40 years as they walked through the wilderness. Every day there was the cloud or there was the pillar. Way well, hey, it's a beautiful day, not a cloud in the sky. Well, except for the cloud of God's glory. What a beautiful night. Look at all those stars, but I can hardly see it through the pillar of fire. God's presence was with them in the midst of them. No other nation had that kind of privilege. And then later, once the tabernacle was built, the Shekinah glory was in that tent. And Moses would go in and talk with God, and he would come out, and his face would be shining because of being in the presence of the glory of God. And then later, when the tabernacle was built, at its uh, opening ceremony, the Shekinah glory went into the temple. The priests couldn't even stand up. Everyone was on their face before God. The brilliance of his glory was so bright. No other nation ever had that kind of privilege. Now, the, the third item in the list is that they had the covenants. The covenants, and no doubt this is a reference to the covenant that God made first with Abraham, right? With Abraham. That's in Genesis 12, when he says, I'm going to bring out Ur of the Chaldees, I'm going to bring to the land that is going to be yours. I'm going to give it to you, and through you, the blessing will come to all the nations. And then it's reaffirmed to Abraham in Genesis 15. 15, he says, hey, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son, you and Sarah, a son. And, and the promise, the covenant will continue through them. And then that covenant is renewed with Isaac in Genesis 17. And then once again, it is renewed with Jacob in Genesis 28, when 
Jacob has a dream and he sees the angels of God going up and down on eleven uh, on a on a ladder uh, between heaven and earth. And according to John's Gospel, chapter one, we know that that was a picture of Christ who descended to the earth and then ascended again. But the covenant was renewed with him, and and Jacob had a wrestling match with God. That never works out well for humans, by the way. And he was injured in his hip and. And he had a limp for the rest of his life, and the Jews don't eat that part of a, you know, an animal because of that. And and it's like that's interesting. And God says, by the way, Jacob, I'm going to give you the name Israel, because the last part of Israel is El, God. You're of God. You're of God. Your people are God's people, and and so you have those covenants. And and I think it likewise and obviously would include the Mosaic covenant. And then you can follow up that with the Davidic covenant, where God says, I'm going to make you a, a king, and one of your seed will sit on the throne forever. Of course, we know that Jesus is the final fulfillment of that. So they had the covenants. God made no other covenants with other nations like that. The Jews also had the giving of the law, he says. Now, the fact that God gave the law to the Israelites and it remained in their possession greatly mattered to them. That was the biggest deal. I mean, the, in the book uh, titled In the Beginning by the Jewish author Kaim Potok, and I'm, I may be mispronouncing his last name, P-O-K-O-T, uh, it describes how the Jews loved the Torah. And they set aside a service annually in which the, the men of the congregation take up the scrolls of the Old Testament law and they dance with them. And in the book, Potok uh, records how one of the young lads in the congregation says to himself, I wonder if the goyim, that is the word for Gentiles, I wonder if the Gentiles ever feel this way about the word of God. To be honest with you, I wonder oftentimes if professing Christians ever feel that way about the word of God. But they had the law. It was given to them and they held on to it. It was the greatest greatest of privileges for them. Next, Paul says that they had the worship, right? The worship. And I'm not sure how all of the translations have it. It would be something like that. Service of worship or something like that. The word that's used here, Latreia, was a word that referred to worshipful service in the temple. So, it, it, this phrase brings to mind the intricate details that God gave in, in, to Israel, instructing them how to build the tabernacle. Boy, you can get tired of reading that. In, in, right? How many pieces of this and how big that is, how many goat skins and who's going to... And all of that, it, it, I know that you get tired of reading that. God was very intricate in his detail. And then all the more so with the... T- temple later on and it brings all kinds of imagery from the ceremonial practices of the priests and the levites and all the sacrifices that were made in the old testament you read through leviticus and you read about the sin offering and the burnt offering and the you know all the different the grain offering and all of the the, those offerings and brings up all those details them serving in worship and these things were unique to Israel. Now, now other religions 
offer sacrifices to God, to false gods. Israel had this worship to the one true God. What a privilege. Included in these privileges was the promises. He says the promises. And this would refer to the many promises God made to his people, including the messianic promises that we read, and that Israel would be the chief nation in the coming day in all the world, that Jerusalem would be the center of world government, and that the Messiah would rule from his throne in Jerusalem. That was promises made to Israel, right? Now, other nations would be involved, but mm, Israel would be the chief nation. Next, Paul says to them, to them belongs the patriarchs. Now, this is clearly a reference to the great men in Israel's history, certainly, and most importantly, to Abraham and Isaac and, 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 and Jacob and Joseph, etc., but also to people like Moses and Samuel and David and, and others as well. And the last item in the list, he says, uh, you know, is from their race according to the flesh is the Christ. This brings it to a climax. This is the biggest and the greatest of the privileges. At this point, there's an interesting change made in the context, though, or in, in, the, in the language. Uh, all the other privileges mentioned are said to belong, belong to the Israelites. Look, if you look back at that, let me get back in my Bible. Look at with, with me again at that. So, verse 4, they are the Israelites, and them, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And then verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs. So all of these things, he says, belong to Israel, to the Israelites. But when he talks about this Messiah, the Christ coming, it doesn't say that he belonged to them. He came from them. Notice that? And from whom came the Christ according to the flesh? Now, why that difference? Is it really a, you know, th that important to note? I, I think it is because I believe that what it is saying is, yes, they, they have the privilege that the Messiah came from Israelite stock. It was the seed of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and David and so on and so forth. But more than that, he came not just for the Israelites. He came for all people. All people. By the way, that was part of the Abrahamic covenant. I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing to the nations. It was part of the prophetic statements that you read of in Isaiah. You are my chosen servant to be a blessing and a light to the nations. God always had it in mind that it would be broader and bigger than being an Israelite. It would be important to understand while he came from them, he was not just for them, he was for the whole world. So the sad story is that although they had all these great privileges, they were still rejecting the gospel and consequently rejected by God. And the truth that stands out then is that those privileges were not a guarantee that they would be saved, that they'd be 
right with God. In fact, the majority were lost in their sin because they had rejected the gospel. And to Paul, that was the saddest of stories. Now, let me apply that. We're not going, by the way, we're not going to the backside of your insert today. Just bring that with you next week. So, doesn't this sad story mm, remind you of our own country in a way? It, it does me. I was thinking about it in, in the past, you know, God blessed the United States with many, many great privileges. I mean, we live in a country which was founded on the Judeo-Christian ethic, on biblical truth, where there has always been a freedom to worship the Lord, right? Always been that freedom. Not all nations have enjoyed such a blessing. And the United States has published more Bibles than any other country. Our, our nation has enjoyed some of the best Bible-believing and preaching preachers and churches. We've always enjoyed an abundance of schools of higher Christian education, including schools like Princeton and Yale and Harvard. They were all founded as Christian schools to train people for Christian service to their country. We have been known as a nation full of Christian charities, most giving people out of a Christian heart, kind of like what we do with OCC, sending these boxes out to kids that don't know the Lord in other countries. Uh, we were a nation uh, full of that. For many years, we were the nation that sent out more missionaries than anywhere else. Used to be England long ago, but when they turned their back on Israel in 1948, they declined and the U.S. rose as the most sending of missionary nations. And yet with all these privileges, we've turned from God, haven't we? We've turned from God and are more and more becoming a godless nation. And, and the Christian heritage and ethic has been abandoned. It's been abandoned. I mean, if you were to talk about the Christian and Judeo-Christian ethic with a lot of people in our country, they wouldn't have a clue of what you're even talking about. They wouldn't know what that even meant. Our freedom to worship is more and more at risk. More and more churches are turning from preaching the truth of God's word to an ear-tickling proclamation of humanistic philosophies. Just read a, a headline this morning about the uh, Methodist denomination. And there, there are breaks already in the Methodist denomination, but other, they are now including LGBTQ stuff in there. They've made that choice. Many schools which were once Christian are no longer, uh, you're not going to get a Christian education at Harvard or Princeton or Yale or many other schools. They've, they've turned their back on all of that long ago. Per capita, we are no longer the, uh, sending out more missionaries than other nations. In fact, uh, we are now the nation that needs missionaries to come to us and share the gospel or missionaries to rise up from within, among us as perspectives, as Key was sharing, as perspective is implying. It's not always foreign. Right where you live, right in our world, we need the gospel shared. So we are very much like Israel. 
you know, I think, I think we thought that we were good with God because we were a Christian nation. You know, a Christian nation. But we need to know that just as Israel's many privileges could not guarantee their salvation, nor could our privileges in the United States uh, secure it for us. And we must understand also that no amount of privileges we have as individuals can give us a right relationship with God. Not growing up in a Christian family, not being a member of a Christian church, not being involved in a Christian ministry, not owning a Bible or maybe many Bibles like I, I do. None of those things, doing charitable deeds, whatever it may be, none of those things can guarantee our salvation. Greater privilege doesn't equal a guarantee of being right with God. But I want you to notice one more thing at the end of verse 5. Paul has said that the Christ had come from the Israelites according to the flesh. A reference to his incarnation. We're getting ready for the season, right? The season of Christmas, the celebration of the incarnation of God the Son. That God himself became man and dwelt among us. That Jesus came to die for our sins, to secure our salvation through his resurrection. So Jesus was born of Mary, uh, you know, the, the Virgin Mary, and he was Jewish. But then Paul declares the other side of his person. He speaks of Christ as the one who is God over all. <laughs> Blessed forever. Amen. Now, there are arguments made, just so that you know, there are arguments made by some that this last part of verse 5 is not a reference to Christ, it's a reference to God the Father. God the Father is overall blessed forever. And you can go through a list of five or six arguments for it, but the truth is they are pretty specious arguments in my thinking because for one reason, if only one reason, it would be introducing a different subject at a very odd place. Christ is clearly the subject. The Christ, who is, you know, according to the race, he comes from Israel. Who is he? He is God over all. Blessed forever. So this is one of the clearest, if not the most clear declaration in the New Testament which states that Jesus, the Christ, is God manifested in the flesh. You, you, you ought to make sure you recognize that, because you'll hear that argument. Well, the Bible nowhere says that Jesus is God. Well, actually, it says that all over the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John, says that all through the epistles in many places, but this would be the clearest statement of it. The Christ, according to the flesh, who is God over all. You see, this is where the, the nation of Israel failed. It is here where they brought upon themselves the wrath of God. You remember what they said to Pilate? His blood be upon us. His blood be upon us. They did not recognize Jesus as their Messiah 
They thought they were killing a blasphemer. They thought they were killing a, uh, you know, an enemy of Israel. They didn't understand that they were killing their Messiah, who is God over all. God, who had died for their sin. God was their Messiah. God was their Savior. Was their Savior, and they rejected him. Now, it is here that we must come as well. I mean, our religious privileges, which we may have grown up with, again, will never secure right relationship with God. But believing in the Lord Jesus Christ will. This we must know and affirm. Trusting in the message that God himself died for your sin, that he was buried and resurrected for your sin, will bring you into a right relationship with God forever and ever. Nothing can ever separate you from him. So the question, obviously, when you get to the end of verse 5 is, are you like Israel? Who, although you may have had all these privileges growing up, my parents were Christian, my grandparents were Christians, my great-great-grandparents were preachers, uh, a Christian. I, you know, I'm a fourth-generation Christian. I, you know, I've, I've never missed a, a, a Sunday school. Well, except for that one time when I was in fifth grade, I missed it, and I didn't get the star that year. But, you know, I, 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 I read my Bible well, not every day, but, you know, I pick it up every now and then read it. And, you know, I'm a member of a good church. Well, I think it's a good church. But uh, anyway, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good person. I'm, I'm a pretty good person because I believe in the Bible. And I believe in the Ten Commandments. And, and I believe in, you know, what all Christians believe in. But those, those privileges don't secure right relationship with God. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And only in him can you be secure. So have you believed? And if you have not, will you believe? If you're like Israel, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if you're sitting here today and it's like, I'm so glad that's solved, that is done for me. I believed long ago. I believed when I was 17 years old. Maybe you, you believed a year ago. Maybe it was 15 years ago or whatever it may be. But the moment that you believe, you were made right with God, justified, declared righteous in the sight of God, and thus you will always be declared by God, the holy judge. All praise and glory to him. Lord, we are thankful for this passage. And we pray that as we continue through this section of Romans, that you'll keep us from going places that we're, where we shouldn't. Where we'll begin to question whether you're just or whether you're fair or whether, you know, that's, that it's right the way that you do things uh, in your divine, sovereign plan of salvation. Help us to receive th- these words that we will continue on with as your word to us to give us confidence in our relationship with you, to give us security in our relationship with you. And will give us confidence in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with others. So help us, Lord. To you be the glory. Amen.